0: Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. I'm your host, John Fury, and I'm joined by my EFB colleagues, John Easton and Adam Belmar. We're also joined by renowned pollster David Winston. Mr. Winston is the president of the Winston Group, a Washington, D.C. strategic planning and survey research firm. Mr. Winston served as a strategic advisor to Senate and House Republican leadership for the past 10 years. He was formerly the director of planning for Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, and he advises center-right political parties throughout Europe He's also a very good friend and former colleague in the House Republican leadership. Welcome, Mr. Winston. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Theory one, change has come. Both the Republican and Democratic parties are going through some pretty profound changes. The GOP used to be called, accurately, the party of the rich, while the Democrats used to be the party of the working man. But the roles are now reversed. The Democrats are dominated by coastal money elites who have nothing but disdain for the average working class voter, while the Republican Party, despite being led by New Yorker named Donald Trump, is the party of the prairie populist. Mr. Winston, two questions. First, is my theory accurate? And second, give me your analysis of the relative state of the two political parties. Parties. Generally, that's correct.
1: What you're seeing is the East and West Coast, where obviously there are higher incomes along the coast, moving towards, uh, clearly, the Democratic Party and being very much um, distinct from the sort of center of the country. The thing that was interesting about this particular election is, in fact, how Trump won it. And where he won it was in the Rust Belt <clears throat> and the voter groups that moved toward him. And by the way, the last person to have won, a o- Republican to have won Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin in a presidential race was Reagan. Um, in 1984, when he basically crushed Mondale, winning 49 out of 50 states, barely, Mondale just barely winning his home state of Minnesota. The groups that moved that allowed Trump to d- achieve that were those making under 50000 those who had a um, college, uh, I'm sorry, an associate's degree uh, or less, um, so not college degree, and those in, in terms of unions. Uh, to give you an example, that um, whereas in Ohio, Obama won um, union voters by 23 points, Trump won them by 13 in this last election. So you get a sense of the sort of working class who are sort of disaffected because of the economy moving toward something else besides the status quo, something that, quite frankly, neither coast recognized – um, Trump, to his credit, um, managed to tap into that and created this situation where suddenly you're sort of potentially looking at this for of the equivalent of Reagan Democrats again, um, except that now they, you know, at least for the short term, um, they're with the Republican Party. It depends where that happens, goes in the long
0: run. I got a question for you. The never Trumpers, the guys like David Brooks— Charles Krauthammer, the National Review, all these folks who basically signed letters saying that they will never, ever support Donald Trump. Bill Kristol, a perfect example of that. They are part of the moneyed East Coast elite, and they are Republicans. Where do they go? Because they will never be with Trump. And you can see it right now, they still hate Trump. Now, and I think what you're watching
1: here is the sort of distinction between what was the political movement and the personality of the individual. And I think the political movement, again, this this concern had arisen four years prior to that in terms of like 2012 in terms of people having this attitude about where the country was going and concern and 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 what party to think through that that's distinctly different from the personality in my sense as crystal and folks are focused on the personality if they understood the movement underneath it i think they would see that they're, they're distinct items they're just not separating them yeah, my sense is, um, and David makes great points about what's happening out in
2: the in the states, which I think that a lot in, on Capitol Hill, they're trying to figure out exactly what's happening out in their own districts, in their own states. They're also trying to figure out this, this president. And the, the the Republican Party representatives, both in the House and the Senate, I believe, are really trying to understand how to deal with them on a day-to-day basis, how to react to them on a day-to-day basis. And I think that... What they're finding out is that it's probably best for them just to really be themselves, really reflect their, their their districts, and speak out in a very tactful way when it's necessary against him, and be with them when it's uh, when it's to their benefit as well. And I just I feel like that that the party is is a mess because we can't really the Republican Party has not demonstrated the ability to, to govern yet in the first six months of this presidency and having majorities in both the House and the Senate. And I just think it's, a, it's just really a huge, huge, bizarre issue.
0: So I agree with you, John. And I will say that um, the Democrats, I think, are in a bigger mess. And we will talk about that in a couple of minutes. But it was an interesting thing that happened over the last week or so. Jeff Flake came out with a brand new book. And I haven't had a chance to read the book. But he basically didn't just indict Donald Trump. But he also indicted the whole Republican Party and what basically he's called a fraud of a party. And I think part of that is because, to, to John's point, is that we're having a whale of a hard time governing because we can't come to any agreements on what we really want to do. Mm-hmm. And, David, we talked about this before. You know, what's the difference between coming up with some principles and coming up with some laws? Well, it's a huge difference,
1: right? And, and you having been in a leadership role as, as well, when I was director of planning for NUDE, I mean, as you know, Newt would come up with all these ideas. Part of the challenge here, of course, was, okay, how do you translate those ideas into actionable things on the floor, right? That's a huge step. That is not a small jump by any stretch of the imagination. And I think part of the challenge here was that you saw people sort of coalesce around principles, but principles aren't legislation on the floor. And you've watched that struggle occur as, as that's moved to the floor. There's another element here too that is very difficult it's it, and this is the concept of a consolidating election and what I mean by that is one of the hardest things to do when you come off of major victory like Republicans just did you have the House the Senate the White House and now you actually have this chance to really move a bunch of things through the dynamic of actually getting from point A to point B is a lot harder and let me let me give you two clear examples of, of where that was a struggle Barack Obama wins in 2008 Democrats win everything. The Republican Party is officially dead. What happens in 2010, in theory, the consolidating election, Republicans take back the House, almost take back the Senate. Go back to Bill Clinton, 92, wins everything. Next year, the consolidating election, almost loses the House and the Senate. Again, trying to get to that point. Last example, um, the first election cycle that I was involved in, Ronald Reagan, right, wins everything in 80. 82 is going to be the year that we finally take the House after 30, 40 years, um, end up losing 26 seats. So understand the other challenge here is the expectations of the electorate when you win at that scale are significant. And so the consolidating election, you have to get some things done. Um, And what you're watching is sort of the majority coalition – of the people who gave you the majority and the people who gave you the leadership, the base, trying to work through those differences, and it's really hard to do.
0: And I had about my, You worked uh, for George W. Bush, who tried to govern. I think he governed pretty effectively, but a couple of the things he passed— No Child Left Behind and the Prescription Drug Modernization Bill, which is still a very popular bill, were two of the things that Jeff Flake said are really not Republican, not conservative. But they were like George Bush's biggest triumphs. Uh, What are your thoughts on, can the Republican Party figure out how to govern
3: given a conservative wing that really doesn't want to do anything? The ability to negotiate is critical. But one of the things that Jeff Flake has pointed out is that Republicans, when they're governing, can actually do an extraordinary thing. They can negotiate with themselves. Some things truly must be done to move forward the nation against major priorities. A prescription drug benefit for seniors under, under Medicare was one of those things. President Bush and his advisors recognized that, realized that it was fundamentally necessary in our society to begin to be able to add that benefit. And so we did it. Was it. Is it conservative? I don't think that that truly matters if I'm not an elected politician who's running scared like Senator Flake is at the moment. I think that Republican Party leadership is at its best when it's finding a way to confront with real solutions to challenges that exist. What's going on now, and this is, I think, what uh, Mr. Winston has pointed out, is that the Republican Party may have some very fundamental things that we agree about, but... We're like Democrats. We seem to never be missing an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And uh, we've got to be able to truly have resolve to get things done. George W. Bush had Tom DeLay. They had a lot of other things that were going on in the House that made uh, the whip process work. And uh, the political realities in Washington have changed. And the politics of Donald Trump is something that nobody knows because we're still trying to figure that out.
0: Uh, Dave, I want to get your response to that. But think think of this in the context, uh, put it in the context of what's going on with Jeff Flake his own primary, and, how, and what the challenge of Donald Trump is. I mean, there's the personality, and then there's also the policies that are a, kind of a big break from where the Republican Party has been in the past, especially on trade. And I think that Trump has some good political instincts. For example, he's kind of with Steve Bannon on the idea of raising taxes on the very wealthy is not something that's unpopular with the Republican base. They are fine with that. So there's the personality, and then there's the policies, and then there's the politics. And, and part of what you're getting at is,
1: is Trump came in with a populist movement. A populist movement is not always a conservative movement. It's a sense of here's some things we want, There's some basic elements in play in terms of we as individuals want to have more responsibility, but there's also the sense of some expectations of we also need some things to be able to live. Sometimes those elements, as you were describing in terms of the prescription deed program, sometimes those things come into conflict. The challenge that you have, as, as you well know, in terms of a lot of these, particularly in the House side um, but you see in the Senate, is that the concern about being challenged from – at least on the Republican side – from the right – and the Democrats are facing the same thing in terms of challenges from the left. Um, forces you in terms of a policy direction to win the primary that makes things a lot more complicated when you get to two things. One, obviously winning a general, but more more importantly when you actually get to the governing process when you have to negotiate to try to make things happen. If you remember the, the, the famous phrase, don't let the uh, perfect be the enemy of the good. Well, what's happening in a lot of these primary situations is it's forcing these candidates to move toward they have to be perfect all the time in terms of aligning with conservative thought as opposed to let's get 90 percent of the way there and then, and then we can sort of make
0: things work. Um, that's the challenge here. So, Dave, quick question. Which party is more screwed up, the Republicans or the Democrats? At
1: this point, they're both really screwed up. To be <laughs> blunt, I know. I, I mean, when you take a look at the the, the attitudes about both parties, um, both parties are struggling. And, and I would suggest what you have is that dynamic that you're describing there in terms of, of the of how do you manage? Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. On the Democratic side, you've got what you were describing before, and that is you have the sort of East West Coast elites, and then you have the sort of working class and the and the center of the country. Um, not necessarily having the same agenda by any stretch of the imagination. And so they've got to figure out how do they deal with their economic dissonance. We have to figure out how we actually work together and govern.
0: I've, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I like to call uh, the, the populist wing the Lena Dunham wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, they are radical. They uh, you know, don't have any values that a lot of people you know in the center of the country would agree with. Um, and they are wealthy. And so I think they have a—the uh, Democrats have a huge problem there. But they're also—the Democrats are a party of coalitions, and I always thought that coalition, you know, they all have to agree on some big thing. And I'm not sure what that big thing is, other than they don't like Donald Trump. Is that enough to get the Democrats to win the elections? No. What,
1: what it can do—is it enough to get the voters to actually look at, at the Democrats? Yes. But ultimately, there's got to be a uh, reason to believe why they should actually then vote for a Democrat— all it's doing right now is, is it's opening the door, but Democrats have not figured out what to do with an open door.
0: Uh, John, you you worked for two senators from blue states. You know, New Hampshire's can be go either way, but kind of a blue state, and uh, Oregon is definitely trended a blue state. What, what's your analysis, and what are your thoughts on how the Democrats, you know, evolve and seeing your own kind of experience with the uh, Maggie Hassens and the. Um, whoever's out in Oregon these days. Jeff Merkley.
2: Yeah, and I think that Dave is is exactly right about what's happening on the right in primaries, what's happening on the left in primaries. We watch what's happening in the Senate very closely here at EFB, and I think that what you haven't seen in this first six, seven months is a legislation that has put the Democrats in any sort of a difficult place because... You know, to, to Dave's point about going and we, we need the perfect, we need it now, we need it day one or, or the next month or the next month or the next month. And so we're pushing this stuff through under these procedural ways, reconciliation, where it is going to automatically be partisan. So the Chuck Schumer and the Democrats, they get together, they say, well, if they're going to jam through a partisan legislative process – we can take that and say, no, we're not, we're not playing ball with that. You're, you're, you're excluding us. We've seen that before, obviously, with Obamacare. So what the, de- the Democrats have, have really had a free pass all year because they were completely unified. If, if you're going to uproot and, and, and repeal Obamacare, they're, they're not going to go for that. If you're going to say we're going to do tax reform under the rules of reconciliation, really, to, you know, to, for 51, 50 votes, then you're excluding us there as well. We're not going to play ball. So they are sitting back not, not having to, have to take tough votes. So the, the moment when, when the pipeline becomes full of legislation that puts Heidi Heitkamp, puts Joe Manchin and, and these types of red state Democrats in, in the crosshairs, that's going to be a different environment.
0: Boy, and, John, I tell you what, that is a really excellent point. And I think, Dave, back to what the contract with America – when we had Democrats who really couldn't hide and many who had to vote for our whole agenda, even though they didn't want to, for their own electoral survival. And we have these Democrats in red states that are getting away with murder because we're not making it, we're not making it hard on them.
1: Right. And what we're not doing, to, to, to your point, is we're not defining a choice that the electorate can understand. Hear my options. I, I do think we're about to come up on an issue that, that will begin to move that direction. That's tax reform. And I think we'll see an opportunity there. Having said that, given the process of having just watched legislation occur in terms of dealing with the ACA and, and the repeal and the whole, the whole dynamic, obviously there's also going to be a greater sensitivity to how do you better facilitate that process. So I'm hoping that tax reform will provide that platform where we'll begin to see that. But having said that, you're absolutely right. It's been wanting up to this point.
0: Theory two, misreading the Trump magic. My theory is that pollsters have never understood the appeal of Donald Trump and have consistently underrated his political favorability. It is still my belief that if the economy is strong in the last year of his term, he will win re-election. You know, looking back on this, Dave, I I look at all the pollsters, they've always thought that Donald Trump was a goofball. And they never, he never, no one thought he was going to win the election. Uh, Everyone thought that Hillary was going to win by a landslide. And even going throughout his presidency, he has been the least popular president, uh, probably in our in our lifetime at this early of a stage. But my my theory on this is that people a are not telling the pollsters the truth, and and b the pollsters don't know how to measure the fudge factor. Now, you're a pollster, so I'm going to put you on the hot seat. What do you think about Donald Trump and the the magic of of him escaping bad poll numbers? Well, I. Actually, I don't think he – he's got bad poll numbers, right? I think part of the challenge here
1: wasn't that people were lying to the pollsters. I think it was the analysis of what was going on in terms of seeing those numbers. Understand, this is a guy who won a presidential election with 60 percent unfavorables. Uh, It's just a staggering – now, fortunately, he was up against somebody who got 56 percent unfavorable. So you had about one out of five people in this country having a negative view of both. One of the things that made this election so complicated for some – was they didn't understand that that was actually going to be a very hard choice for people. As they worked through, I don't like both of these. How do I get to a decision? Ultimately, at the end, they ended up breaking for Trump by a pretty significant margin, by a 47 to 30 margin, right? And that, that's how he ended up being competitive um, in the Rust Belt. What um, you need to realize and what, what a lot of the other primary opponents to Trump didn't get was the sense of how unhappy people were with the status quo, how much they were looking for change and how much they were trying to drive the country in a, in a very different direction than where it was. Interesting last item in terms of looking and from the exit polls, the number one attribute that people were looking for in a candidate was change. That was 39 percent. Okay. Trump won those voters 82 to 14. Okay. And so what you see with a lot of what happened in terms of on the Republican side, there wasn't that sense of we need lots And significant change, it was, gee, if I can just attack Marco Rubio for wearing high heels and try to associate him with some negative thing, why, then I'll win the nomination, right? Whereas Trump was out there just saying very direct statements that people were kind of like saying, okay, from a populist point of view, he wants to build a wall, okay? At least I know what he wants to do, as opposed to attacking Marco Rubio for wearing high heels. I mean, it was just, the other campaigns were sort of at this absurd level of discourse. And Trump was being just very basic. Um, and it was a moment in time that that connected in terms of a populist electorate.
0: Now, Adam Belmar, you are a former member, recovering member of the media. The media seems to love to take these polls and hammer Trump with them. And Trump never doesn't seem to really be any worse for the wear. You're a little bit skeptical of our president. I know that having talked to you off camera. Um, Uh, What's your view of polling and the media and how this all interacts and if it has any impact at all on Donald Trump?
3: I agree with you, John, that the press enjoys taking polls and having a great headline or something that drives a narrative that they've been pressing on for a while. But as opposed to sort of giving my take on the value of polls, if you'll allow me, I'd like to ask Dave a question because what I'm really anxious to know from you, are we asking the right questions? Take us through that process. What are people like you and other leaders in this space challenged with right now?
1: Well, let's go back to the national polls this last time around. Remember, they had a slight Clinton lead, and at a national level, Clinton won by 2.9 million votes, right? When you looked at it state by state, there was a different dynamic. When you, So the the basic capturing of the information correctly was occurring. The analysis is where, where the problem exists. And so let's go and, – and the thing is everybody says, here it is today. It must be over. No, that's not at all the dynamic. Well, can I
3: interrupt you? Does that mean – put it back in sort of the way I was thinking about it – That We did, writ large, ask the right questions in 16. And we just misinterpreted. There was a huge
1: level of misinterpretation, right? Sorry. Let me go back to when you have one out of five voters. We've never had the scale of this being having a negative view of both. You have a volatile electorate. Did you hear people saying there's a bottle electorate? No, they were saying this election's over because if the, what they were doing is saying if those people split 50-50, then she should win by a comfortable margin. What they weren't thinking through is what happens if they don't split 50-50? Because what he was doing, and this is the important thing, he was typecasting hers the status quo and he was changed. Okay. That meant that group of voters was not choosing between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. It was, do I want change or do I want the status quo? That was a very different question that was being, being missed at that, at that point in time. The other thing, too, in terms of Trump and going forward, again, the, the sort of sense of it's not today. Basically, there are two numbers going to, going to John's point. There are two numbers that matter to him, right? One is how many jobs are created and what do wages look like? If there have been a significant amount of jobs created and wages gone up, he's in good shape. If they haven't, he won't. So these numbers are interesting in terms of, like, taking your temperature. But the bottom line is those are the two numbers that matter. When do people decide that they're gonna start making a decision around those two numbers? That could happen later this year, or it could be next summer, who knows? But understand that, that those are the two numbers that really matter to him at this point. So in the
3: polling world, status quo versus change, it sounds like you're saying it's status quo. We need to better refine our analytical capabilities, but the status quo on survey, on questioning, is, is getting to the meat of this new phenomena?
1: partially. First off there's a broader thing that I that in terms of just how do you simply get a good sample, right, which is significantly changing in terms of cell phones, you've got panels in terms of online there's a whole variety of things that are occurring. So, as a result, particularly in terms of doing online, there are a lot more statistical things that you can do if you ask questions in a certain way that lets you use a whole bunch of statistical tools that that, that, are, that allow you to have a better understanding. But there's another element here, too, and, and, and here's the structural change, campaigns versus looking at how I, I approach in terms of getting the information. Campaigns, the basic doctrine for campaigns is this, right? You did the opposition research report. Right? You do a survey testing which message would be the best negative attack, and then you run ads. Right? That's the entire strategy for virtually every campaign across the board. Right? Well, the electorate, by the way, cares about issues, right? and they want some understanding about issues. And so it's not necessarily are you asking the right or wrong questions. It's do you have the right, right understanding of what is the electorate concerned about? So you're asking questions that actually get to what they're concerned. They care about issues. You need to understand where they are on the issues. You need to understand how those in, issues interact as opposed to just assuming if I just drop this heavy negative attack, it'll be all over. The best example was the Billy Bush interview, right? Everybody thought Trump was dead at that point, not realizing that in a populist world, he, you know, he had already gone through a series of attacks against him. It was about, okay, so who was going to drive change at that point? And so I think part of your point is if you think that everything is negative-based, and, and again, watch the media, right? Every night it's the sequence of attacks, right? And, I, and as opposed to where are we moving on issue X, where are we moving on issue Y? And, again, going back to the Rust Belt, what they wanted to hear, they didn't want to hear about Russia. They didn't want to hear about Hillary's email service. What they wanted to hear is what are you going to do about the economy?
0: Dave, you put out a memo uh, uh, yesterday that asked the questions, you know, what do voters really care about? Uh, where is North Korea on, on the list of things that people really care about?
1: it has and, and when I did this survey was was just prior to uh, was prior to all this recent activity. it had moved up pretty significantly. Um, it was certainly in the top tier in terms of the country it wasn 't the top group of issues um, the top group of issues being the economy, overall um, foreign affairs defense specifically dealing with ISIS um, and health care. Uh, but it was th- that next level down. I would assume now, if I was back in the field, um, that you would see that move up significantly. Having said that this is, w- this is where you see um, the diff- where you see actually Republicans and independents behaving much more like each other as opposed to Democrats. Democrats had a whole series of issues that they found more important than North Korea, um, at, uh, ranging from again uh, obama 's health care plan to um, climate change, to just, I mean, a a, a variety of different things. Um, And I think this is an example, again, what you were describing, the sort of East Coast, West Coast, different issue set than the sort of middle of the country. I I, I do want to go back to one thing about Trump, though, in the tweets. One of the advantages that he had during the campaign was that, in fact, he was addressing issues. There are moments with his tweets where he just completely takes um, the discourse often in uh, an unusual direction. I'll just put it that way. And I and I, I, I will tell you, one of the weaknesses that he has at this point is he needs some message, not message discipline, but issue discipline, right? Two different things, right? You know, I, I'm not a fan of this week, it's going to be this issue, and next week, it's going to be this issue. I'm like, if this is the number one issue, then this is the number one issue until it's not, right? And one of the things that he that he needs to really sort of Develop is an issue discipline to stay focused. Um, And what the tweets do is it just, here's today's topic.
0: This is a great segue into theory three Trump the troll. Donald Trump picks a fight with Kim Jong un. He picks a fight with Mitch McConnell. He picks a fight with Richard Blumenthal. Most of this is done through the wonder of Twitter. And none of it makes any difference to the way he governs. It's all nonsense. But it does serve a purpose of keeping the media off guard and keeps the president on the offense. Dave Winston, how much does this trolling hurt the president's credibility? My theory is not much because he didn't have that much to begin with, especially with the mainstream media. Uh, what say you, David Winston? In terms of the mainstream media, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, his level of credibility,
1: and you saw this happen with Sean Spicer, it was sort of like, you know, let's watch the Daily Food fight, right, And which was actually not particularly fun to watch. Um, and I'm sure from your perspective, having done press, that was probably uncomfortable to watch, <laughs> to say the least. Having, having, having said that, I don't think it's helping or hurting, because again, I go back to the, in the sense of long term, because again, the two numbers that I described before in terms the amount of jobs created and wages is still going to be how he's measured. But what I do think he does in the short term it makes it sound like there are moments when he's not focused on those issues. And I, and I think that does hurt him. And, and I think the randomness feel of it, I think, also sort of shakes people's, not, not, not confidence, but shakes their sense of, of he knows exactly what he's doing when he suddenly goes off on a topic that is sort of out of the blue. And so I, I, I this is where I go back to, I think he needs issue discipline.
0: I would say, uh, Dave, thinking about the the fight that he's had with Mitch McConnell. And some people say it's counterproductive, and it probably is a little bit counterproductive. I think that Mitch McConnell's a big boy, and he can handle it. I will also say this, that this is goes back to his own credibility, because he said we were going to repeal and replace Obamacare, and the Senate Democrats, the Senate Republicans and House Republicans have said the same thing. They promised the same thing for seven years. And so when you don't pass a plan to replace Obamacare with something else and repeal Obamacare, they, they kind of hurt their own credibility, the, the, the congressional Republicans, didn't they? And, by, and when Trump, you know, trolls McConnell on this, I think in many ways it helps his own kind of credibility. And he's actually shifting the blame, even though he probably deserves some of the blame. A
1: bunch of different thoughts. First off, understand who's up in twenty eighteen. It is not Donald Trump. It's congressional Republicans, and if he wants a majority in both, he better figure out some way to help Mitch McConnell rather than trying to say he's the problem. Right? Okay. So, so let's just start there. I, the other, the other element here too, and this is what I was talking about: how difficult a consolidating election was. Okay. We have been promising all this time in terms of repeal of Obamacare. Um, but one of the dynamics was that we weren't in a situation to have it signed because you had Obama sitting in the White House. Now all of a sudden it was real, and the sense of translating that from principles to actual legislation, obviously there was a challenge there that they didn't develop. They're going to have to work through that and make that happen. Not not necessarily in terms of Obamacare, but specifically as you're thinking toward tax reform and eventually looping back.
3: I want to jump in because Dave said something I thought was spot on when he talked about the need for the president not only to practice better message discipline, but issue discipline. And as a former, nay, recovering Journalist. I have, I think, a special (laughs) insight at this table into the lack of message and issue discipline going on in the newsrooms of our country. Donald Trump is like so many Americans who love cat videos. Cats will do the greatest things. And one of my favorite things to see is when you take a little laser and you sort of start pointing it around, the cat will jump at it and then you put it over there, the cat will jump at it over there and it'll just keep jumping. And that is what Donald Trump is doing with his Twitter feed. It's like a little laser beam and the the media cats go whoop and they go whoop, they go over there. And every single day, this sort of chaotic cadence of news coverage ultimately diminishes the saliency of almost every issue because they're breathless in trying to keep up. They don't know in their own minds what's important. All they know how to do is be reactive and put seat you know put butts in chairs, mics on faces, and jabber jabber jabber. And the rest of us are watching the cats jump at the laser beam. And so I think that your your point, Dave, is so true for the White House. But it's also something that's now impacting all of us in our consumption of this editorial through our media channels. No, and
1: this is a huge problem for the media at this point because ultimately, you're right, they're they're sort of – they're following the storyline that he drives every single morning. The thing that's different about Twitter than press releases – okay, think about this. When you – John, having done many press releases, you send press releases out and you hope somebody picks it up. Well – when you've got 20 million people, 30 million people following you on Twitter, you just have to put this out and now the press is just stuck, right? And they don't know what to do with it. So now the, tr- the press, I think, and, and they're doing this at a broader level, is thinking through this transition of how do we cover news stories in so, given the age of social media? How do I actually describe what's going on in terms of the economy? How do I describe what these issues are when I've got the sort of moment-by-moment moment going on, right? Um, I don't know if people remember the Max Headroom Okay, Max Headroom was this dynamic of, okay, so we're going to have this constant. How many viewers are you watching at any given moment? right? And the media, for some reason, has fallen into that trap as opposed to if we deliver good substance and good news, news coverage, in fact, we'll have an audience, and they're struggling with it. And as they're going through this new business model, um, right now it's creating some chaos.
0: John Easton, you are a resident Senate expert, uh, having spent a lot of your life in that upper chamber. Um, how does the Trump trolling of Mitch McConnell, how does that play out in the Senate? Does, do they care about it? They're, are they annoyed by it? Um, and what, did, what do you think about it? Why is, why is, Trump, why is Trump, Trump doing this?
2: Well, right, again, it's it's following no script whatsoever. It's, it's the most unorthodox approach mm-hmm. that we've ever seen in our political lifetimes. Uh, having worked for a, a senator, run a senator's campaigns, Gordon Smith of Oregon, when George W. Bush was in the White House, it was so important to be in sync with his team, with Karl Rove's team, uh, what what the president uh, should not do in Oregon, what he should do in Oregon. Uh, we were just in, in good communication, and and I think that this is – I'm sure puzzling Mitch McCall to no end how to how to deal with this. I don't think I don't think it's helpful. I come from a school of thought that is, you know, let's work together, not against each other. But let's go back to North Korea for one second, because I think that the trolling of Kim Jong-un actually might be on balance helpful. I pray to God that's the case in this instance, because it's very serious stuff. But the Kim Dynasty, let's face it, they've been dealing with these pretty cool Reasoned, reasonable, diplomatic presidents. Now, for let's Obama, George W. Bush, Clinton, George H. W. Bush. If you think about the personalities of each of these presidents, there, there, they just there was a, a an assurance there that we're going to be okay. But in the end, as it's been written about and said in the last week or two, that actually all that did was enable the the the, the Kim dynasty to do what it's done with nuclear weapons. Now they've got this character in the White House. And I guarantee you, like the cats jumping all over... They don't know what to do with this guy. They don't know what to think. They don't know how to react. And I bet... He has them off balance right now. And if that is the case, I would say that is a net positive to his trolling.
0: I I kind of appreciate how the president brings me into it by fire and fury. I mean, for me, I thought it was kind of, what do do I have to do with this? But Dave Winston, I think John Easton has a point here that the madman in the White House might be scaring the shit out of the madman in North Korea. What are are your thoughts about that?
1: Well, I have to say, uh, this is where I'm particularly happy that we have people like Mattis and Tillerson um, in their respective roles i 'm glad that General Kelly is now chief of staff I, When it comes to diplomacy and dealing with nuclear weapons, while there's a sense of there's a sense of conflict management gamesmanship that exists there's also a sense of needed stability and doctrine around. How things are going to evolve look you know mutually assured destruction as a nuclear doctrine between the Soviet Union and the United States, while not necessarily a particularly satisfying theory was one that actually worked, um, Having said that the introducing volatility into a nuclear situ, nuclear situation um, I think has to be very very carefully dealt with, um, and so he 's obviously. Pushing that barrier to some degree, um, to your point, I, 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 as everybody does, we want to see that work out well, um, but it is certainly not the normal strategy that we've seen.
3: I am particularly interested to find out if, if we can find out what impact this bellicose rhetoric from the president, decamped from the White House, up in Bedminster, is having on Republicans. Are, are his overall approval rating is going to go up? Are people going to have a positive reaction to this? And so I asked that question you, Dave, but I also want to say that I think in a very serious way, Dave's point about the volatility that exists in this confrontation is so problematic, uh, even though it can have domestic political benefit. Because once you've got the boss parroting the same kind of inflammatory bellicose almost devil may care comments about what we're gonna do oh yeah we're gonna do that to you and it's gonna be bad worse than anyone's ever seen i assure you that But there's nowhere to go from there. And after a while, we become inured to it. And we know that the Kim dynasty, as John put it, is used to making these threats and and perceiving that that can get them some purchase diplomatically. But when we do it, and then like President Obama's Syrian red line, very little comes of this or incremental steps on the other side are not met with any Mm -hmm. response. You downgrade the ability to negotiate in this way.
0: Well, that being said, I mean, both the Chinese and the Russians. We've got their notice here. They're, they're noticing what's going on, and they're you're, concerned. You're right. Yeah. And you know what? The Japanese need to know that we're going to stick up for them, and yeah. so do the South Koreans, so, the, so do all our allies in the region. I bet you that has some positive impact with the, that nutcase in the Philippines. You know, you need to show strength. And to your point, Adam, about how this plays domestically, I bet you that it doesn't play that well with the northwest, northeast elite. But it plays well with the populist folks who really want someone to say, I'm not going to take this crap from you anymore, you little pipsqueak.
2: Well, and one player to watch here is Senator Lindsey Graham. He is he is an expert in foreign policy. He is one of the strongest voices of a active and positive U.S. role in the world, long has been. Member of the Armed Services Committee. Obviously, he ran for president. And he's one to watch because... He has studied these things. He, he, he understands this North Korean dynamic very, very well, as well as China and Russia. And so far, he has been with Trump on this in terms of the posture that he is taking in this situation.
0: One last bit of trolling that I want to talk about, and that is Donald Trump trolling Richard Blumenthal, the senator
3: from Connecticut.
0: And I say this because it's Unrelenting. This is fun, and I mean, it's fun, and you know what? It's deserved. Well, welcome to the NFL, welcome baby. Welcome to the NFL. And I think about that, and I think about that in, in the context of how he trolls Elizabeth Warren, which is also well deserved because both Warren and Blumenthal are liars.
1: No, and here's the challenge that he's got moving forward in terms of as you're describing all the all the tweets he's doing, and all this. There's a level of which he's engaging, and people. Find it interesting and and they watch it, but there's also potentially there's a level of exhaustion that can occur here. And the challenge that's going to be existing for him all the time is he doesn't want to cross that line. The moment he crosses the exhaustion line, then all of a sudden everybody kind of goes, you know, enough. Well, and are, are you the and the wise
3: thing... men know where that line is? Are you giving advice on that fact? Do I, you know? I don't.
1: Th- I, we don't know where that line okay. is because we've never we've never seen anybody actually cr- understand. This is a whole new line, right? And right. So the the, the this, well, this there, there, there there,
0: there was a moments in in the Bush administration where people just got tired of George Bush.
1: Yeah, but that, but that, that's different than where he's engaging in terms of tweeting and doing all this stuff and he's driving things at a different scale versus someone just getting sort of tired because they're not sure that the administration is going the direction that they think it should go. Well,
0: like, I know, but there, there was Bush fatigue and then there was Obama fatigue. And that usually happens in a second second term. Yeah. Yeah. The question for, for Trump is he better not – Get people exhausted before the... You don't even know
3: what fatigue is.
0: And you've already seen it with the press corps. They are completely fatigued. You know what? I want to say thank you to Dave Winston for uh, coming today. Every time we talk, I learn something. I would also want to recommend to you, because one of the things we do here at EFB is we recommend local establishments uh, for dinner, lunch, places like that, Rose's Luxury is from my perspective, the best restaurant of the value, best food they they have. I would really recommend the lychee salad if you ever have that. John Easton, have you been to Rose's Luxury? Absolutely,
2: and I think you hit the nail on the head about its value. It's not easy to get into. you got to stand in line or have somebody stand in line for you. But you have to stand in line for a while, get that table, go on an off night. But if you're in, you're going to... Really love the food, and you're going to really love the price.
0: Now, I, I will also say, Dave, I've seen you often at Charlie Palmer's, which is uh, one of my favorite restaurants, a great place for dinner. I, you know, uh, You've got some good bartenders there still. Yep. We, we miss Brad and some of the other ones there, but uh, <laughs> uh, Heather was always great. Yes. Um, but I know that you're a big aficionado of Charlie Palmer's, as am I. But I would say that if you get a chance, have you been to Roses Luxury? No, I have not. So I'm I'm going to I'm going to give it a try. Given given these recommendations, it's really hard to get a reservation because they don't accept reservations. Okay. But um, if you can find some one of your interns to sit in line for you, um, that's a very really, very really good value. Anna Belmar, have you been?
3: No, I I know that Roses Luxury has received a Michelin star. That uh, besides the enthusiasm for this restaurant here at EFB World headquarters in Eastern Market. Uh, there are esteemed (laughs) professionals that also agree with this, this conclusion. I myself uh, have not been there because I don't stand in line.
0: Well, Uh, I would, I would recommend for you, Adam, uh, and I've done this before, go to the bar, sit at the bar, have a couple glasses of wine and eat dinner at the bar if you can do it, because it's well worth it. Uh, that wraps it up for the Fury Theory podcast. Thank you for joining us today. EFB means excellent for business. Yes, baby.